Good morning, everybody. This is 88.7 FM WRHU. We're broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio South. And guess what? We are back once again for the Wednesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. We're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Ryan Pagano. Joined alongside me by my co-hosts, Sibyl Rateau and Matt Rubenfeld. And today we got another jam-packed show. We got discussions on Governor Kathy Hochul's multiple press conferences yesterday, a potential return of indoor mask mandates, and also two insightful interviews coming up later in the show. So you're going to want to stick around for that. Stay tuned because you're not going to want to miss that. So, Sibyl and Matt, I mean, definitely a lot better weather here in Hempstead, at least compared to the past couple of times that we've been here this early for the show. But how are you guys doing today? Honestly, the weather, I've realized this week that the weather has a very big impact on my mood. Today, I'm just in a great mood. Um, The walk here was beautiful, hearing, like, the sounds of nature outside. That's kind of just the level that I'm on. But, uh, Matt, how are you doing today? That's good to hear. I'm waiting for that mood to kick in, but yes, I'm feeling good today. A little bit exhausted, but I have my coffee by my side, ready to take on whatever this day has for me. I mean, I'm pretty much feeling the same way too. I can't really come here without having my coffee at home first. I feel like it's kind of a rule, at, at least for me personally, that I, I got to have at least one cup before I come here, because if not... I'm just a different person. Mm, I, I, mean, I don't it, know if you feel the same way about no, that. No, I get you. I take it with me on the go. Sometimes when I go a whole day without drinking any coffee, any caffeine, I kind of am in amazement with myself. Like, <laughs> how did I How did I function Honestly, today? I am also a caffeine addict, except I drink it right after the show. I go straight to Dunkin' as soon as 9 a.m. hits. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I completely shut down. I even get like headaches if I don't drink coffee for one day, which is probably a sign that I should stop because mm. I'm a little too much of a coffee addict, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. Oh, it's all good. Now, honest question for the two of you. Are you more of a hot or iced coffee type person? Mm. If I'm buying it from Dunkin' Donuts, I or like Starbucks, I guess sometimes I am an iced coffee person. But whenever I make it like at home or even in my dorm room for myself, I drink it like you know I drink it black basically with like a lot of sugar. For me, that's kind of a loaded question because I am a <laughs> Starbucks barista. So let's say if I'm going into work, I'm like I'm like you know running late and I really need something, I'll just take a grande cold brew, and that's how I start my shift. But in the morning, I make a hot coffee, like a pour over, or something like that, and I'll put a little creamer in it from you know, 7-Eleven. I like to do a hot coffee in the morning and an iced coffee in the afternoon. If I wanna drink it fast, it's gotta be cold, because I don't like to burn myself. Yeah, I kinda feel the same way about that. I mean, usually when I make my own coffee, it's usually hot, but if I'm buying it from, say, the Dunkin' on campus or the one on Hempstead Turnpike, for that matter, too, normally I'm just somebody who goes with an iced coffee because, look, I, I've ordered the hot coffee a good amount of times, and it's usually way too hot for me. And the next thing you know, I can't taste anything for the next two hours <laughs> after drinking it. So that's always fun. But, yeah, that's kind of my little rant, a TED Talk, if you will, on how I like my coffee, I guess, and why I don't really drink hot coffee that much. Right. But, it yeah, enough of lot. me rambling, I guess, for the time being. <laughs> it's okay. It's an insightful question. It's a good conversation starter. Ask somebody how they like their coffee today. <laughs> yeah, it'll make all the difference in the world. You never know how it will go. But anyhow, with all that being said, let's get into today's show because... As I mentioned in the intro, we got a lot to talk about today. So it's been quite an eventful 24 hours for New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Uh, Two events made headlines yesterday that swept 
that sent shockwaves throughout the country within the past 24 hours. So yesterday morning, over 10 people were injured in a subway shooting in Brooklyn. And the shooter, who's still at large as of now, he was reported to have fired three rounds at the 36th Street subway station in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And while there weren't any working cameras at the station, there were a ton of videos that surfaced of this incident on social media and the NYPD. They also put out a citywide alert in the aftermath of this, searching for a U-Haul vehicle with an Arizona license plate. Uh, they believe that is the vehicle connected to the shooting, so they're still investigating that. As of right now, Governor Hochul and New York Police Commissioner Key Chance Sewell, they held a press conference on the situation and Sewell made it very clear that this wasn't being investigated as a threat of terrorism. I want to begin by assuring the public that there are currently no known explosive devices on our subway trains, and this is not being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. And Hochul also asked New Yorkers to just stay vigilant as they continue the search for the shooter and hope to hold him accountable. This individual is still on the loose. This person is dangerous. They're asking individuals to be very vigilant and alert. You'll get more reports on specificity as the day goes on. So this is an active shooter situation right now in the city of New York. And later in the day, Hochul took to the podium yet again to discuss her lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, resigning after an arrest for alleged campaign finance fraud charges in a past campaign. Now, while she addressed the media, she ultimately declined to comment on his arrest. We'll have a statement out there. I've not had a chance to speak to him. I was uh, doing media interviews this morning, but this is not the place, but I will be addressing it very shortly. Let's focus on the fact that there are people in a hospital right now fighting for their lives. Those are the people we're thinking about and praying for at this moment. So, yeah, quite an eventful 24 hours for Kathy Hochul dealing with these two major events in the same day. Now, Sibylla and Matt, I'm definitely curious to hear... Your initial reactions to all this going on? I mean, this is clearly a story that hits very close to home as students that go to school um, and live at school in New York. I mean, many students here are constantly in Brooklyn, constantly taking the subway. I was just in Brooklyn this weekend. And it's very scary to see that something like this can happen. I am curious how the person got away. Um, especially after uh, Mayor Eric Adams calls to add more police to like to the subway station. So it's confusing to me how this A happened, but B, while it's out of the control that it happened, how did it how did the person get away? Um, but it's it's definitely a very scary story. Um, and it's it's very telling of like where we're at in violence as far as violence goes in the subway. Definitely. It's for sure a shocking moment for New York. I know that in New York, people are always on high alert of something dangerous happening, especially on the subway, on in, on, in the street. But, you know, until until you're actually in that moment, nothing can really prepare you for what to do. So like, like Kathy, Hochul said, staying vigilant is probably the best key to to just keeping yourself safe because you never really know what can happen. As far as um, this story, I was watching the news in the library yesterday as it was developing, and I heard them on the news describing the the suspect with a gas mask and a jacket, and I was just thinking... Like this is this is wild. Is he in a? He's. It seems like he's trying to do a movie thing, and I know it's it's a lot more serious than that. And so I was just really floored by the the anonymity of what the suspect was wearing, and like you said, how he got away without being seen or caught or anything. Right. I think it's also kind of strange and concerning how normalized it's become, at least in New York, with um, chaos in the subways. 
especially violence. Like I watched videos of people in nearby cars or just when they exited the trains and people, you know, there were obviously people who were scared and then there were some people who kind of just, you know, you could tell they were just going on their way, obviously very shaken, but just going on their way to work. And it's like, I feel like violence in the subway station has become way too normalized and accepted, especially now. Um, this has been a topic for the past few months. You know, this isn't just like a random act. Um, there's been a rise in violence and this is kind of like, well, I'm hoping that this is as bad as it gets, that this is the peak of it. But it's like, I think that this event is just even more of a sign that there needs to be more done to prevent something else like this happening. I don't know exactly what the, those measures would look like, but there needs to be something, you know, I I think we're all tired of hearing, um, you know, about these mass shootings and about people getting murdered. I mean, we were watching headlines yesterday going from at least 12 people who were injured to at least 20. Who knows what that number is going to look like today? But um, I don't know. It's just like a very scary time to be in New York. No, it really is. And it speaks volumes for sure when you have people... At least, at least those who were some people who were in the subway cars at the time of the shooting, just continuing on with their day as if nothing happened. It really speaks volumes when that's pretty much how they're reacting to it because it's just become a part of our normal lives, which is indeed scary to think about and to think that this could really happen on any line of the New York City subway. is just a terrifying just a terrifying thought all around. I mean, I was just on the subway this Sunday going to the Yankee game with a couple friends. I mean, I mean to think that it could have happened on another line is just very scary, but you can't really help but think, how does this keep happening? I mean, we have a mayor now who's the former transit police officer and also the city is sending in more cops than ever to help deal with the homeless problems that they have in the subway systems. But also now they're going to be doubling that amount to help combat shootings of this nature. But really what I'm curious about now as we look forward is, is this going to work the way that Eric Adams envisions? I don't know, because where were the additional police officers that they added, you know, just like a month ago? It seems like maybe they were too preoccupied running all the homeless people out of the subway stations and didn't and weren't able to catch someone like it's one thing if there's a murder that happens in like some secluded place where there are no police, but they just recently added police. So I'm like and the subway is an enclosed space, so I don't understand how how the person got away. Um, and I don't know that the only thing that we can do is, you know, double the amount of police officers because so far it doesn't look like that's been doing enough. We Even after that decision was made by the mayor, we still saw more and more crime happening in the subway station. Again, I'm not in law enforcement. I don't have any better ideas, but I just think that there does need to be a better idea. Not definitely. And I mean, we were talking about this um, earlier in the semester, Sibyl, about um, at least how over-policing could also be just as much of a problem as under-policing, too. I mean, we were it, it wasn't really that long ago where we were discussing that on an earlier show. And, I mean, it could have very well have a clear effect, um, with especially within these past, these next few weeks, as New York City continues to send more officers down into the stations. Yeah, I I I don't know how much it would have been prevented especially if if we're recently putting more people patrolling the subways. Clearly, it didn't work in this situation. Something went wrong. This suspect was concealing a weapon and a gas mask and whatever else he had on him and it still went under the radar so it might not even be a question of quantity but you know how we're looking for potential threats in the subway 
Yeah, I completely agree with that because it's not just about catching the suspect or, um, you know, the criminal. It's about preventing um, any deaths from happening at all. So, I mean, how do we do that? Because the police are more of a, they're not so much a preventative measure. They should be, but in a lot of cases they're not. Um, a lot of times it just ends up being that they're the ones who catch the person after the crime is done. But we want to like prevent people from getting hurt. Oh, definitely, a million percent. And something else I should also mention about the shooting too, uh, the gun jammed while he was firing as well, while the suspect was firing. Three rounds were fired, and then the gun jammed, which many say uh, prevented a lot of more injuries and even deaths. But also, movie, also talking about the Brian Benjamin resignation, I mean, just another crazy headline uh, surrounding Kathy Hochul. To, at least today, especially as the primary elections are just around the corner, midterms are just around the corner. So I'm definitely curious to hear how the two of you feel about this rather sudden resignation. Because this arrest, I mean, it, it only came out yesterday. And within a couple hours, Benjamin already resigned from his position. And Hochul was very quick to accept it. Mm-hmm. It's not really a... It's... Well... This is certainly a developing uh, story, but it's not it's not a sign it's not a good sign when you immediately resign after the allegations come out. That's kind of owning up, not even owning up. That's just saying, yeah, I did that. Goodbye. Thanks for the time. Good night, everybody. And I I I feel bad for for Governor Hochul right now having to, you know, come up with an explanation, field questions while also dealing with more pressing issues i hope that they find a replacement soon and that the replacement doesn't have any personal problems with themselves or their criminal history yeah i definitely agree um i don't think that this is going to help her as the midterm elections come up um i don't know it's just kind of like i feel like now is not a great time to be a politician it kind of seems like one tragedy after another and then you also have to think about controversies like this where you know someone who's closely tied to you turns out to have a criminal history and then you have to cover um not cover that up but because <laughs> that's you know unethical but you have to have an explanation for it and you have to kind of dig your way out of it so um, that's definitely going to be something that we're going to see at least in the next few weeks. Definitely. And this is just awful timing to have all this coming out too, because you got to keep in mind as well, the deadline, uh, to accept or decline designations for the upcoming primary elections. Uh, that was on Monday and he resigned a day after that. So you got to keep in mind, he's still technically on the ticket right now, even though, He's already stepped down from his position. But if you're Governor Kathy Hochul, all you can really do is just do all you can to prevent the fallout of this resignation from becoming radioactive because this has a lot of implications on the midterm elections, especially especially because Hochul's trying to be become reelected as governor. She's trying to win election to win that seat for the first time. Of course, you got to keep in mind she filled in for former Governor Andrew Cuomo last August after he resigned due to some other stuff going on. But that's definitely another story for another day. But, I mean, Kathy Hochul is just in a really tough spot right now, not just with the subway shootings, but also now she's got to pick a new right-hand person mm. to help her to help her lead the way through a very busy time for her. Right. And it's going to take a lot of work to kind of clear the air and at least um, move through a lot of the, you know, issues, people, things that people have been asking her to do. And so I hope it, I hope it's easy for people to nominate another replacement and that we get some good out of it. Yeah, I mean, that's all we could 
really hope for at this point. So, I mean, two major headlines breaking yesterday regarding Kathy Hochul. Very tough time for her, I could envision. But, I mean, as these stories continue to develop, we'll be on the lookout. We'll keep you updated on anything else new that transpires in this because even though this is this only happened yesterday we're still it seems like we're still getting a lot of relatively new information on this but anyway moving on um speaking of policing and speaking of policing we have another story to talk about which pertains to that particularly a lot closer to home and Sibyl I'm aware you got the scoop on that. Right. So in December, Newsday published an investigative story written by Sandra Petty about the Joanna Bird case. Um, For our listeners who don't know, Joanna Bird was a 24-year-old mother of two children and a Long Island resident. In 2009, she was ultimately murdered by her abusive boyfriend, who was a high-ranking member of the Bloods. Over a decade later, hidden files that were initially suppressed by the Nassau County Police Department were revealed and outlined the details of the repeated police failures that led up to Joanna Byrd's murder. The files also revealed that the department charged 11 police officers, one detective, and two sergeants with as many as eight counts of misconduct, each in connection with the Byrd case. However, Newsday's investigation found that some of the penalties that the officers actually faced lacked severity, um, their punishments ranging from the loss of as little as four hours of sick and vacation time to as high as 24 days of accrued sick and vacation time. Petty's article about Bird's murder was part of a larger investigation series that Newsday was doing on police internal affairs. Ryan and I spoke with Newsday writer Sandra Petty yesterday to further discuss the fatal neglect that allowed for Joanna Bird's untimely death. So police are required under state law to make arrests in domestic violence incidents, regardless of the victim's wishes, which is what you wrote about in the article. So can you talk about why you think that the police violated this law even after Joanna Bird reached out on several occasions for their help? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And let me start off a little bit about the story of Joanna Bird. This was a 24-year-old woman, mother of two small children, who was murdered by abusive ex-boyfriend in 2009. And at the time, we had heard rumors that the police hadn't made the mandated arrests and that they had ignored 911 calls leading up to her murder. But we could never get the records because the records were sealed under the law. And in 2020, the state legislature unsealed police disciplinary files. So we were able to get the important files to tell us that story. And we did a project in conjunction with USA Today that was published in Newsday in December. And why did, I think, I want to preface this by saying that I think we have many great cops on Long Island. And I think domestic violence is a complicated issue. It can be frustrating because victims often don't want to cooperate. And as you pointed out, the law mandates that uh, abusers get arrested in domestic violence situations, but it can be frustrating when victims don't cooperate. And there were a couple of times when Joanna Bird failed to cooperate, but when you peel back the onion, you realize it was because she was so frightened. She was terrified. Her boyfriend knew what levers to push. He knew the criminal justice system very well because he had been in it since the age of 12 when he pointed a BB gun at the heads of two children in elementary school. And so he knew how to work the system and convince her that he was going to kill her. As to why the police did what they did, I don't have an answer for that. But the file showed us 10 calls in the months leading up to her death uh, that the police looked at. And and it, in at least several of them, they found that police showed up, stayed for five minutes, and left. Joanna Bird had orders of protection that didn't seem to make a difference. And what you learn in domestic violence, and the reason it's so important for police to make the arrest is 
violence escalates as the abuser realizes he's losing control he escalates his violence and i interviewed one expert an attorney melba pearson who said listen you've got to understand every domestic violence case is a homicide case you're trying to prevent a homicide and that's why it's so important to make these arrests so it was uh, a real shocking story that the files released and the police ultimately were punished but their punishment ranged from a loss of 24 days of pay which is a pretty stiff penalty but it's not a loss of a job down to just 4 hours of pay but we never would have known that had the files not been released 10 years later i don't know if that answers your question but that's the best i can do no it definitely does answer my question but um i also wanted to know if you think that because her boyfriend was a high profiling blood member so i was wondering if you thought that that had to do with why the police um weren't as involved in the case as they could have been since he was being used as an informant well that's again a very good question in fact the family believes that uh pedo that's his nickname his name the killer's name is leonardo valdez cruz and he was nicknamed pedo he worked as an informant it, the other thing that emerged in the files is that he worked as an informant for the nasa county police he was a high ranking member of the bloods he provided what they believed to be valuable information he by the way denies that i interviewed him in prison and he denies being an informant but it's pretty clear from the file that they were using him as that and so it raises the question was he were the police valuing the information they got from him more than they were worried about the threat against her life because they knew this man was violent just a few months before he killed her he kidnapped her and tried to stuff her in the trunk of his car and he told her he was going to kill her that day but she talked him into believing that she still loved him and she managed to get through that night but 3 months later she wasn't so fortunate and regarding the joanna bird story and all was there a large public reaction to that Oh, absolutely because it was such a violent murder. This poor young woman and and by the way, she was bright, beautiful, ambitious. She went to school, she worked two jobs. She wasn't someone you would think could get caught up in an abusive relationship. And that's what was so revealing to me is that someone like Joanna could get caught up in this abusive relationship. So yes, there was an outcry. The Nassau County Police Department did change its policies toward domestic violence after this, and they have a specially uh, trained team of police now who work side by side with domestic violence advocates in the same building, so they coordinate very closely, so this information doesn't slip through the cracks. As we know, this was a large part of a large investigation that Newsday did into. how long island police forces sort of police themselves um so can you talk about what the investigation revealed in terms of what was discovered um about how nasa and suffolk internal affairs systems disciplined police officers in cases where victims faced death or serious injuries well we since december we have been doing stories called inside internal affairs and this is based on these newly released police disciplinary records were secret these records have always been secret and what they show is that even in cases where someone is seriously injured or killed and there's found to be some police misconduct the penalties are often very very small There was another story where a police officer Weldon Drayton was drinking all day. He's also he was also a volunteer firefighter. A fire call came in and he got hopped in his car and raced to the fire call but happened to hit a young man Julius Scott who was literally just testing out his friend's car and driving it around the block near his home and he hit Julius's car uh put, wrapped his car around a telephone pole 
his mother ran to the scene and Julius had been pushed into the back seat. His scalp was peeled back and she could see parts of his brain uh, sticking out. She pushed his scalp back. He had to be removed by the jaws of life, airlifted to Stony Brook Hospital in a coma, and still suffers from traumatic brain injury, very seriously hurt, and Weldon Drayton lost four days' pay. That's very likely a result of the fact that these files were secret. The public hasn't known up until now what kind of penalties were meted out in these situations. And it's definitely unbelievable to think about. How often are you seeing these police officers facing actual repercussions after breaking these stories about them getting away with misconduct, but especially if they initially got away with it before the story broke? Well, I'm not sure there's much a a police department can do after the fact, except try to monitor that police officer and make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. And the... The new police commissioner in Suffolk County, Rodney Harrison, has made it very clear that he's going to take a tough stance against any kind of misconduct or misbehavior. The Nassau County Police Commissioner, Patrick Ryder, continues to refuse to comment. And have you or Newsday faced any sort of backlash whatsoever from the Suffolk Police Department since this story was broken? I would say the answer is no. Uh, Certainly I haven't, but I can tell you I'm not going to roll through any stop signs anytime soon. Um, You know, I think we all have to be careful. Uh, And the fact is there are a lot of very good police in both these departments. And in the case of the Weldon Drayton story, the important thing to understand is it was a cop who tipped me off to that story. There were no press releases on that story. The police department at the time did not want this out. But there was a cop who was so upset about what happened, he called me up and told me about it. And that's the thing. These stories, the people who get most upset by these stories are the good cops. And there are a lot of them out there. You know, while police brutality is a different topic, but how important do you think it is for stories like Bird's story? Um, to be reported on as national conversations surrounding police brutality are on the rise? Well, I obviously do think it's very important. And USA Today obviously thought it was important because they published the story in in their newspapers throughout the country. And it's, it's important to have these conversations and it's important for it to be out in the open. Police departments argue that they don't want this information released because they don't want to violate an officer's privacy. And they are understandably very protective of their police officers, as they should be. And the other thing to remember is that police deal with some of the worst of human nature. They deal with horrible situations on a daily basis, and we have to understand that. But at the same time, as a community, we need to know what our cops are doing, and we need to know how the police departments are dealing with that. And the George Floyd conversation has really pushed reform efforts on Long Island, and we'll see. It's Long Island is slow to change, but there are some very real efforts out there to get accountability for these kinds of actions. Um, so our final question is, What, in your opinion, would you say the next step is for Long Island Police? Um, What step is it that you think they should take now that the story has been investigated and exposed? Well, look, I'm going to talk from a very particular journalistic point of view, and that is I think they should release the records. Uh, I can't show you the records that we got when we asked for them, and we're entitled to them because the law has been repealed, but they still have all sorts of caveats. And they give us literally blacked out pages, completely blacked out pages. And I would argue for more transparency. It's, it, it seems a little painful in the beginning, but in the end, it's much, much better. And I, I've talked to police officials all over the country, 
And they say grudgingly, yeah, we didn't like it in the beginning. It was kind of embarrassing. But in the end, it's really better for everybody to have transparency. So I would urge them to release these records, but uh, we're not there yet. And thanks again to Newsday writer Sandra Petty for speaking with us about this incredibly important issue. If you're interested in hearing more about this story and other stories relating to police internal affairs, I highly suggest reading the Inside Internal Affairs investigative series on Newsday. Um, But with that interview being done, I think we can get into our next topic. Let's dive right into this. It might be a little bit of deja vu for some people, but Philadelphia is bringing back its indoor mask mandates. Now, as we see COVID case rates going back up, indoor mask mandates are slowly coming back. Philadelphia, we've seen this. This has become the first major U.S. city to bring back the indoor mask mandate after reporting a sharp increase in cases. The decision was made by Health Commissioner Cheryl Bettigol, and she said that the confirmed cases of COVID have risen in as about 50% in 10 days, which seems concerning. And that also doubles the city's threshold in which city guidelines will begin calling for people to wear masks again. Health officials believe that this spike is due to the BA2 Omicron sub-variant, which has become dominant in the U.S. throughout the past few weeks. The mandate will begin to be enforced starting April 18th. So, I know what you guys are thinking. I'll tell you what I'm thinking, and that's no! No! (laughs) I was just like, I just want to find more minutes, please, without having to worry about getting sick. But... COVID is not giving up without a battle, a fight, and neither are we, question mark? I, yeah. Honestly, I, 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 I understand it. It is sad that we have to, again, become, like, overly conscious about COVID, um, especially just as mask mandates were lifted, at least here. You know, I've chosen to keep my mask on in, you know, spaces like this, like studios or classrooms. But I'm not going to lie, when I'm with my friends, like, I take it off. I've gone out without it. And now it's like they're putting this at the forefront of our minds again. But maybe as they should, because when mask mandates were lifted, it it didn't it wasn't really because the numbers were that low. It kind of just seemed as a reaction to people's exhaustion from covid. Um, I think we're all sick of it. We're all sick of thinking about it. And then this this option to no longer wear the masks as long as we were vaccine as long as we were vaccinated was relieving. But, you know, if science says that um, that it's better that we keep them on, then I guess we have to listen to science, unfortunately. But that's just the reality of things. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it's going to be that way. And. I will say you two pretty much spoke perfectly for everybody in regards to how they would feel about this. I mean, this is just sort of a wake-up call, if you will. No pun intended, because our show is called the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call, after all. But <laughs> now, in all seriousness, though, this really is a wake-up call to not just everybody in the Northeast, but really to the whole country, really the whole world, to... Keep remaining vigilant. I mean, yes, we are seeing a lot more cities, a lot more institutions getting rid of their mask mandates and all. But just because of that, it's not like COVID's going away anytime soon. And now we're starting to see the case rates go back up, of course, because of BA2. So I don't know. I mean, seems like a very dangerous precedent uh, to have, especially with a new subvariant on the rise. But I'm curious how a lot of other cities, a lot of other institutions are going to respond to that. Yeah, I am too. I mean, we did get an email from our school's president um, basically saying, you know, this was a few days ago. She basically was saying that while the mask mandates aren't lifted, she um, sort of stressed that we should maintain hygiene with our hands, you know, 
wash your hands regularly as we already should have been doing. But, you know, if we weren't already doing that, then she was kind of reminding us to. And I am curious to see what the future is, because I think that over the past few years, we've been reminded over and over again that we the future is uncertain, not to use a cliche, but I feel like it's become very true to our reality. And I think that this in total is a reality check that COVID is not done. Um, what it's going to become in the future, who knows if it's going to become an endemic rather than a pandemic, we'll see, I guess. I hope that's not the case because I don't want to be thinking about COVID for the rest of my life. Um, but so far, we don't see it ceasing to exist. And evidently, it's it's having its effects. You know, numbers are rising. Variants are coming up. Who knows how? Um, but yeah. Oh, definitely. And I mean, that was, this is definitely something that... Um, our school's president, Susan Poser, she stressed in that email, too, saying that, I mean, look, with the case races, case rates on the rise, that it could potentially impact students with uh, finals and all that, because it doesn't really seem that far away, at least now. I mean, I know a lot of people like myself would think, oh, it's only a month away. I don't need to worry about that. But if there's one thing that I've learned from my two years in college thus far, time flies. And it flies really fast. And, I mean, staying on top of all this is very important, a question about it. But, to, I mean, to also have to worry about COVID rates going back up and all, just there, there's only so much that we could take of that. It really is. Yeah. Um, personally, I like to not be sick. So I'm definitely going to be washing my hands more often. I am also going to be continuing to wear a mask in class. <laughs> and I hope other people just do what is best for you and your health, keeping other people in mind because, you know, everybody's immune system is different. But we're all in this together, right? Exactly. High school I mean, musical. <laughs> in the end, we are all indeed in the same boat and... I mean, that's really all we could really do, just making decisions in the best interest of not just ourselves, but really for everybody as well, because this is a public health crisis, and a lot, a lot of people have been affected by it. A lot of people are still being affected by it to this day, and it's definitely been sort of a theme throughout this whole pandemic, if you will, that a lot of people have sort of underestimated it and how other people have been heavily impacted by this and i mean it's just a reminder that covid unfortunately as much as i hate to say it it's probably not something that's going away anytime soon yeah definitely um it's really just a matter of whether you know scientists in the cdc want to accept that reality and speak out on it or if you know we're gonna ignore those who are immunocompromised and still very much at risk even though you know, people like you and I might not be, so it's easier to forget, but there are still people that we need to consider as this um, pandemic progresses. Exactly. And I mean, keeping those people in mind is just going to make so much of a difference, especially moving forward. But definitely what I'm curious, at least thinking about now, I mean, it's not that far. It wasn't that far away where New York City still had a vaccine mandate just to go indoors for literally anything and with the case rates back on the rise could you guys see that potentially being reinstated or some form of it being reinstated um well to some extent i think that at a lot of places the vaccine mandate was kind of performative for lack of a better word i feel like they weren't as strict with it as they sort of implied they would be i'm sure that that that's not true for all places but how many places have you gone to where they actually asked for a vaccination card for me it hasn't been that many places it's more on campus than anywhere else so i'm sure that we will continue to see that in the future well not sure but i can see that we'll see that in the future um but i'm not sure if 
if it's going to do much. And I'm not sure if um, businesses are going to go through with it because it didn't really do much. And it's it's not good for business to have a vaccine mandate. It's better for people's health. But ultimately, what people are worried about is money. True. That is a that is definitely a point. People were talking a big game about how the economy was going to bounce back as soon as uh, lockdown procedures ended and mandates ended. And now that we've seen those programs come to an end and inflation is still increasing, that's not a point that people can go back to anymore as, as a reason why we should um, continue or discontinue the use of masks slash vaccine mandates. It's just a whole sticky situation. And I know that's like the worst way to describe it, but it's also the only some of, one of the only ways to describe yeah. it. I mean, it is the truth in the end. And I mean, that's definitely a topic that I would for sure be interested in following up on throughout these next couple of weeks because I could envision there's going to be a lot more transpiring out of all this. But moving on to our next topic now, one of one of the topics, at least concerning national politics, that's been sort of swept under the rug throughout all this other stuff with COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all that topic that's often been swept under the rug has been immigration reform and with President Biden sort of at the forefront of it. He's facing criticism from politicians on both sides. He's facing facing it from a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. And a lot of people are trying to raise more awareness to this issue. And I had the opportunity to sit down with Rodman Serrano, who is the Suffolk County community organizer for Make the Road New York to discuss more about raising awareness for this for this issue, but also to talk about how Long Islanders are affected by this as well. Let's take a listen. For the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Ryan Pagano. Joining me now is the Suffolk County Community Organizer for Make the Road New York, Rodman Serrano. Rodman, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, no, thank you for... Uh having us uh, be a part of your, your program today. Absolutely. So first off, what does your organization do to help immigrant communities here on Long Island? Yeah, so I am the Suffolk County Community Organizer with Make the Road. Make the Road New York is a nonprofit organization that works to build uh, power in Latino and working class communities, uh, which we do through community organizing, um, policy transformation, um, uh, also providing different uh, survival services to the community, and also leadership. And we do all of this to help tackle some of the critical issues that, that are facing our communities, whether that's uh, immigrant rights, uh, tenant protect, you know, helping to also st uh, strengthen tenant protections, making sure that community members are well aware of their rights in case they face any injustices, uh, in their work areas, uh, so really helping to provide community members with the tools that they need to help confront, you know, some of the many issues that they might encounter. And would you be able to talk about some of the events, some of the programs that Make the Road offers to help reach out more to the local communities and also create bonds with them? Yeah, so we are a, a membership-based organization. Um, we have uh, five offices in New York State. Um, that includes um, in uh, Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, Westchester, and here on Long Island, our office is located in Brentwood. Across all of our five offices, we provide different services that are very critical when it comes to you know uh, making sure community members are getting some of the information that they need. So we are able to provide, for example, evening English classes for adult learners. Also, we are uh, able to provide folks with support when it comes to navigating the healthcare system. So we have healthcare navigators for folks that need to apply for, you know, um, uh, for different health insurance plans, legal services, uh, adequate and affordable legal representation is something that's extremely important, whether it, you know, it's something in regards to their immigration cases, 
or through um, uh, wage theft, right? Or perhaps an issue that someone is having with their uh, with their landlord. So these are all very important services that we help to provide to the community. Uh, but in addition to that, um, we all you know we are a grassroots organization. So one of the ways that we help bond with community members is through uh, our campaign. So we do host bi-weekly community uh, meetings for community members to join us to learn more about what are some of the, the campaigns that we're involved in and then how they can also get involved, right? Regardless of their immigration status, regardless of their income, you know, really helping to provide folks with like the, the tools, right? And also the community like a sense of community that they need to actually get involved and in, you know and help make sure that they can make a difference right when it comes to the things that are impacting not only them but also their you know their children their family members um so also plugging them into the work that we're doing well definitely and taking more of a look at the national perspective of immigration reform it's been a very important issue that's been sort of swept under the rug especially when you compare that to a lot of other prominent topics, whether that be COVID, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or anything else of that nature. And so uh, what can we do to raise more awareness for that topic? Yeah, there are certainly a lot of things uh, taking place at the state and federal level. We, as, as an organization, in, in coalition with organizations across the country, are you know really working to make sure that immigration reform is and that it stays a priority for our um, elected officials who are representing us in Washington. Folks who are looking to get involved can certainly reach out to our organization. For instance, on Wednesday, April 13th, we're going to be hosting a, a vigil um, to help you know commemorate Holy Week, but also to bring attention to the stories of our members, right? Members who they themselves, right? for many years having to work, having to raise their children without a, you know, a, a legal status. And so we're going to be hosting a vigil to help uh, highlight the stories of our members, but also ca call upon our elected officials to make sure that they are also hearing from us, which is what they need to do. Listen to the stories of the, the, the people who are directly being impacted by a broken immigration system that we have. And then also, you know, motivate folks to, you know, to also get involved, right? You know, beyond this event, we, we're going to continue pushing our representatives to take leadership, right? They have been elected to represent their constituents in Washington. And, you know, here on the island, we have a large immigrant, immigrant population, many mixed status families. Uh, we need to make sure that they are taking us into account when it comes to the legislation, you know, that they are prioritizing. Well, definitely. And it is very important, too, to take that into account. And regarding the vigil, what are some aspects that you hope those in attendance could take away from the discussion? Yeah. So for us, it's a very important opportunity because, you know, it is a moment that we can not only celebrate this very important time for, for many community members, but we are also able to help demonstrate you know, the power of community. Uh, we are going all to, you know, be gathered together, helping to uplift the, the personal stories of community members who are directly impacted of not being able to have any pathway to adjust their immigration status despite decades of living here, of you know, working in this country, contributing to our nation. And so, you know, we, we really want to create space for folks to not only share their stories, but for other folks to also come and also listen. Um, I think really being able to listen to the stories of your neighbors, right, of folks who maybe live in the other town, you're, you know, at the town next to you on Long Island. It's very important for us to understand just how urgent of an issue this is. There are so many different uh, issues that are affecting our country. Immigration has to be prioritized. You know, we are still in a pandemic. We still have many community members, you know, because of their lack of immigration status, for example, here in New York State, right, are not able to have access to affordable and adequate health insurance. And we all know the, like, the importance of it, you know, that it is to have 
access to health insurance and make sure that others, right, our classmates, right, or our our neighbors or folks that we work with also are are healthy for our own health, but for the health of the community. So yeah, so kind of like creating that opportunity for folks to listen to uh, the stories of others, um, but also feel empowered by our strength, right? You know, this is this is a fight that we've been engaged in for many years. Well, certainly. So today is definitely going to be a very important one for you and make the road, not just for the vigil, but also because you guys are now starting to reopen your offices. It's been closed for quite a bit due to COVID and all. What does that mean to you and the local community to be able to physically reopen after that time? Yeah, yeah, it's a very it's a very exciting time for us to be able to once again reopen our offices like throughout the pandemic of course we've still been operating although it's been uh remotely, right? So being able to work with community members, you know, face to face is something that um is is very important especially when it comes to a lot of the the issues that folks are, are dealing with which can be very, you know, um very sensitive topics and so being able to uh, sit one-on-one with a community member and, you know, uh, try to help them with what they're experiencing or, or guide them to the, like the help that they need. It's, it's something we'll be doing, but also, you know, a, a lot of our, our, our members or our family members of our, our members have also been, you know, personally impacted by COVID-19. And so for us, this is something that's still also very much um, present in, in our minds, right? So, you know, despite, yes, we're, we will be reopening, but there are still many safety precautions that we'll be taking to make sure that, that we're able to have a, um, a safe space for, for community members who come to see help. Well, definitely. And I mean, remaining vigilant, I mean, especially now is very key. I mean, we're starting to see some of the case rates go back up a little bit, especially in these past couple of days. But Going back to tonight's vigil, so I'm aware there's some listeners who may be interested in attending your event later tonight. Where is this taking place? The vigil will be taking place here at our Brentwood office, which is located at 1090 Suffolk Avenue in Brentwood. Yeah, so we will be hosting our vigil right here at our office. But for the amount of people that we're expecting, it will be an outdoors event, right? So right here at at our office, but outside. And lastly, before I let you go, Rodman, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, um, as an organization, right, our fight is not just focused on immigration reform, right? We also are involved in campaigns at the state level. We have been fighting for years now, right, you know, so that here in New York State we can have access, you know, people who are undocumented and have access to health insurance, which is something that's extremely important. Also access to childcare, access to assistance for folks who, you know, because of the pandemic, you know, if, if someone became ill or if someone was laid off from their job, that that person is still able to receive support from our state. Someone's lack of immigration status, right, you know, really limits the kind of support and the kind of um, resources that are available to them. So we've been really involved here in New York State to fight and change policies to make New York State more of a welcoming place for our, our immigrant communities. And, and so in, 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 in even in these ways, right, like not having access to, you know, an in, in immigration status or legal status, right, is something that in, in many ways impacts, you know, community members across many different areas. And once again, the Suffolk County Community Organizer for Make the Road New York Rodman Serrano. Rodman, thank you so much once again for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you once again to Rodman Serrano for joining me. And unfortunately, that's just about all the time we are going to have on today's show. So Bill, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been fun as always. Yeah, it was a great show. I'm glad we got to do those interviews. And I hope everyone has a great day and enjoys this amazing weather that we're having at least this week. Mm -hmm. It's always a pleasure. I'm excited to be back here the next time. And like Sabil said, take the weather in because you don't know what's coming next with it. We're going to... Ominous. Exactly. Exactly. Don't take it for granted. I mean, if there's... Soak up the sun. Keep a little bit of it. 
And there you go. I mean, if there's two lessons to take away from this, one, enjoy the sun and don't take it for granted. I mean, I do that a lot. I'm very guilty of it, but also stay safe, stay vigilant, all, all that fun stuff. I mean, especially with COVID going back up. I mean, that's really all we could do, just staying safe, protecting everybody else. But with that being said, yes, that's about all the time we got. Thank you so much for spending part of your morning with us today. But don't you worry. We're going to be back same time, same place next week. So be sure to stay tuned for that. And once again, this has been the Wednesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call. Thank you for listening to the Wednesday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call. Tune in tomorrow at 8 a.m. to hear Alexa Servo and yours truly, Danny DiCrescenzo, on the Thursday show only on 88.7 FM WRHU. Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. Morning Wake-Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students.